I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey, welcome again to The Pink Elephant Podcast, where we take on the biggest issue in the body of Christ, that despite all we know, it can feel like something is missing in our faith experience. In this episode, I want to delve into a topic that God frequently speaks to me about in my dreams. Now, I've had dreams for many, many years, and I used to think it was because I had eaten too much pizza the night before, until I had one dream that was so significant, and a few months later, what I dreamt came to pass. From then on, I've paid attention to dreams, and not only has it grown significantly in frequency, but they've actually been really helpful in guiding myself and others. Even this podcast came about from a series of dreams. But the topic that frequently presents itself in my dreams that I will share about in this episode is the religious spirit. Now, I know many would not have heard this terminology before, so I will unpack it. But any believer who decides to go deeper in their faith will inevitably face this belief system because it absolutely permeates throughout the body of Christ. So much so that people look at what it produces and mistakenly believe it's Jesus when all it really is is a deception. So what exactly is a religious spirit? In a nutshell, it is a spirit that deceives believers into minimizing a loving relationship with God and instead focuses on tradition, rituals, acts, and works in the expression of faith. Now, I don't actually know for sure if it is a spirit or a demonic force, for instance. It could be a mindset. It could be a belief system or even a culture. But its main goal is to reduce the Christian faith to a set of behaviors, void of love. Now, it is true that when believers are seeking God, they will produce certain behaviors that are reflective of the love and worship that is in their heart. But this spirit prioritizes the behaviors above all else, and very rarely is it motivated by goodness. It can be motivated by self-righteousness, pride, status, and even power. The way you can discern its presence is that the traditions and behaviours will become of greater importance than opportunities to truly love people. It will conflict with love, the very quality for which we are meant to be known by. Now, we can see evidence of this conflict in Matthew 15, where the Pharisees are asking Jesus why his disciples ignore the traditions as passed on by their ancestors of washing their hands before they eat. Now, I know it sounds like a good idea, right? But this was not done for cleanliness. It was done for ceremonial purification. Like rabbis around that time referred to the failure to wash the hands as the equivalent of laying with a prostitute in terms of its defilement level. It was an intense rule and it assumed that any contact made with the outside world could defile a person and therefore they had to wash to purify themselves. So check out Jesus's response to their question about the disciples not washing their hands for ceremonial cleansing. This is in verse two to nine. It says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now that last statement is a real doozy. These rules that they had devised were taught as though they were doctrine, and yet they were man-made. And this is the crux of the religious spirit. It deceives believers into thinking that God requires something of them that is merely a social or man-made rule. If you are hearing all of this for the first time, it might be hard to reconcile that this kind of deception could exist in the body of Christ. But actually, we are warned about this in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 to 14, it says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Then there is Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And that one's actually said by Jesus. Now, these two verses point to the fact that there will be people who look like they love God and they will encourage others to live their way. But whether they realize it or not, their intentions are not honest and nor do they reflect God's heart. Now, the fact is these false prophets and the like can obviously deceive us into anything, but the religious spirit has a very specific goal. Its goal is to draw you away from a life that seeks to love God and other people and lives by the Spirit and lead you back to working for your salvation. Even though you've been saved, it is the highest of all distractions because instead of living your life out of worship to God, you will be consumed by looking and being perceived as righteous. So why would a works-based faith, as in those observable righteous behaviours, be the goal? Why would that be a deception? Wouldn't a deception that leads to sin be far worse? The underlying assumption of a personal community with a religious mindset is that they believe that works or activities are needed in order to be acceptable to God. And for this reason, it is often searching out more rules and rituals to add to the list. It reasons that if we do good works, God will accept us. If we sacrifice, God blesses us. But this is not the order of the Christian faith. The order of the Christian faith is God sacrifices, God loves and accepts, and we receive his invitation to a new life. God does want us to do good things, but never to earn our salvation. He wants us to do good works because of love and worship. That is an overflow of the relationship we share with him. Good works aren't the primary goal. The primary goal is the relationship. And by default, when your love for God grows, you will want to serve and love. It says this in 1 John 4 verse 17. It says, and as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. But when we pursue works and those behaviors above all else, even above a relationship with God, It is often more for ourselves than it is for God. And if we are successful at adhering to these rules, it can very soon morph into a self-centered desire to show our goodness to others. As Jesus demonstrates in Matthew 6, 
See, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. He encourages his followers to do all of these things in secret, in contrast to the hypocrites at the synagogues, that's his terminology, who were doing so to receive status and praise. The reason we would keep something like that secret, giving, prayer and fasting, is because it's the only way you can be absolutely sure that you aren't doing it for personal gain. It is part of this tendency we have towards self-centeredness that even something that originally starts for good can turn into an act we perform for our own self-image. There are literally thousands of people every day who give to the poor and their one and only motive is to feel like a good person. And even fundraisers know that and they do marketing in such a way to like appeal to that side of you that wants to be a good person or at least be perceived to yourself as a good person. Now, the irony of that is that it's actually not about the poor. It's about how you perceive yourself. That is why Jeremiah's statement in chapter 17, verse 9 is so profound. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We are actually able to convince ourselves that we are good, even when we are being totally selfish. Without a relationship with God, we really can't be sure that the things we are doing are a product of selfishness versus love and kindness. Interestingly, we see the first instance of rulemaking all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God has advised Adam that he can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden besides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? However, when the serpent asks Eve, she responds by saying that not only can they not eat from the tree, but they can't touch the tree. Now, she's actually added to God's instruction. There is much speculation as to why Eve responded this way, by including this additional rule. And the truth is, we may never really know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that sin had not entered human existence. So it couldn't have been done out of some sort of sinful desire. It probably was out of a desire to be faithful. So here's the thing, it wasn't necessarily wrong for her to have thought, well, it might be best to just stay away from the tree altogether. In fact, we often do that ourselves and we would call it wisdom. You know, when I'm trying to be healthy and, you know, not have as much chocolate as I usually do, I just don't buy it. I I make sure that my house is chocolate free so that it removes the temptation. Now that's probably what Eve was doing. I know it's slight, but her relaying of God's instruction was not accurate. She claimed that God said something that he never actually said. Fast forward a couple of hundreds and thousands of years and the Pharisees had not taken one rule and added another like Eve, but they had added hundreds to the law of Moses. Many of these laws were concentrated on external rituals and behaviours to be holy, but most of them had never been prescribed by God. Fast forward again, post-crucifixion, and the same issue is rearing its ugly head. Instead, the matters for debate were abstaining from certain foods and circumcision. All right, so let's go deeper. Why is this so bad? There are so many negatives to this mindset of religiosity, but worst of all is how it convinces people that this is what God wants. 
In the Old Testament, the Israelites began to believe that God's highest priority was the sacrificial system and not what the system was created to achieve. In Isaiah, God makes this very direct remark. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. That's Isaiah 1 verse 11 and then verse 13. See, God is explaining that the sacrifices did not bring him any pleasure. Now, this is a system that he actually created. The people of God had again misunderstood the purpose of the system. Yes, there was atonement required for their sins, but this was so that God could continue to be present and walk with his people. It was supposed to encourage them to live righteously. It was intended so that sin would not prevent communion with him. Instead, they had turned it into a ritual that did little to honour God's presence with his people. And what is the point of a ritual that holds no significance for the individual? That's what we would term obligation. And we generally do obligatory acts for one reason, self-preservation whether it be meeting the most basic requirements to avoid punishment or just to save face before our peers. An obligation is rarely founded on love, desire or worship. The interesting irony is that when we add rules, often intended for good, they increase the distance between God and us because whilst it seems like wisdom at the time, Rule-keeping and traditions can become a substitute for a real relationship with God. For some, having real intimacy can be scary. To be completely vulnerable about every fear, sin or bad intention you have had to a God who is perfect and powerful, that can be intimidating, especially if we don't believe we are worthy of being loved by him. Keeping rules is actually much easier for the person who is afraid of intimacy because it is very possible to perform righteous acts without ever putting your heart in a vulnerable position. On the flip side, for those who are willing to be vulnerable with God but struggle with keeping the rules, we can interpret God as an authority figure that is making it hard to approach him. Look at the case of Eve. Instead of an entire garden filled with luscious fruit, including the fruit from the tree of life that she was free to eat from, She saw one tree and two rules. It should have been one tree and one rule. That was a 50% increase in rules. Now, I don't know if that factored into her decision, but imagine if she had chosen wisely. Would she eventually have made up other rules too? Like maybe you can't go near the tree? Don't even look at it. That whole section of the garden is now off limits. Now you can't eat of any of the trees that are near that tree. Also, you can't say its name. I could go on. Where is the line for us? And at what point did we just turn God into a creator who cares little for his creation and only seeks to disqualify us? You know, there is a very interesting passage in Exodus 20. God is about to reveal himself to his people, the most epic of all epic reveals. 
the people that he has chosen, that he has rescued, that he wants to walk faithfully with, are about to meet him. The whole scene is very special. Let's take a look. It says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Of course, such a scene would be frightening, but how much could the Israelite people have misinterpreted this situation? Why would they think he brought them all the way from Egypt out into the desert to kill them. This was the mother of all encounters and the Israelite people's response was distance. This was not at all the kind of relationship they wanted with God. They were still trying to keep with the Joneses, watching all the other nations who also had their own sacrificial systems. They didn't want a relationship. That would have been too vulnerable. Just tell us what to do. That was their mantra. Imagine that mantra in a marriage. I don't want to know you. Just tell me the bare minimum I have to do to keep you. I don't see that marriage lasting, do you? Moses was right. Having seen God in this way would have changed so much for them. The commandments would have made more sense. The relationship between God and his people was the context from which obedience would flow. See, time and again, God continues throughout the narrative of Scripture to draw us back to this truth. To have our hearts in devotion is His greatest priority. So why is this such a significant problem? Why do we have this tendency to revert to law instead of relationship? In Colossians 2 verse 23, Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have had to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This passage demonstrates something so fascinating. Paul considers this habit of accumulating rules a worldly behaviour. What? Most of us would call this religious behaviour, but he is essentially saying that what we would deem a religious behaviour, rule-keeping, is in fact worldly. This seems so backward. What in the world is Paul talking about? When I hang out with non-Christians, they don't seem conscious of pious behaviour. They don't tell me not to taste or not to touch. So where did Paul get this idea? The idea that the power is in our hands to be good as we define good is a worldly idea, even if it is in a religious context. In principle, it is no different to the person who rejects God because they believe they are good enough without him. It is no different to the creation of every other religion that outlines the key ways to find God or enlightenment. It is this subtle deception 
because we may have received God's grace, but it still encourages us to want to earn our standing. Okay, so here are a few of the kinds of behaviours typically seen in a religiously minded or religiously spirited person. Number one, they are very preoccupied with image, not just for themselves personally, but how their families are presented or how their church is perceived. It's all about maintaining the air of superiority. Jesus expresses this in Matthew 23, verse 27 to 28, when he addresses the Pharisees. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. It makes sense, right, because all of their efforts are going toward external observable behaviours. Number two, they are not compassionate. In fact, they can be harsh and judgmental. People who are religious, they cannot tolerate the failure or struggle in other people. Number three, I often find that a religious person is very uninterested in relationships. They may want to teach you, advise you, correct you, mould you, change you, enlist you and judge you, but they don't want to know you. Because when you have deemed yourself superior, you don't want to fraternise with those below you. You need that gap. You need that distance because that's what's keeping you above them. Number four, they are punishment focused. This is probably one of the most significant traits. They see the world through a punishment paradigm. This means that when someone makes a mistake or sins, they will think that the answer to that problem is punishment. They actually believe that punishment resolves every unwanted behaviour. And they also have a tendency to view their own world through the lens of punishment. So when their plans don't come to pass, they might assume that God is punishing them for something because they assume God has a punishment paradigm, just like them. All right, number five, they are controlling and hierarchical. Now, most of this is actually due to pride's contribution to self-righteousness. Pride tends to control and is power-driven because the person who is proud actually believes that everyone else should surrender to their will. They actually believe that everyone should please them. Because of that, it has no problem controlling others to get what they want. And they are hierarchical because they interpret power as the key ingredient to getting everyone else to do as they desire. Number six, they cheapen the truly sacred. In one of the dreams I had, I was in a church and the minister who was dressed in some kind of sort of ministerial robes was leading the congregation to take communion. Instead of bread, though, representing the body of Jesus, he ate a McDonald's sausage and egg McMuffin. Now, I'm sure that that sounds quite humorous, but I knew what this image was really portraying. God was showing how the religious person or leader in this case can cheapen the gospel message. Someone who already believes they are righteous, that they can earn their standing, and that faith is a set of observably righteous behaviours cheapens the sacrifice Jesus made. Number seven, 
they actually fear the outside world, which you might have noticed in the example of washing the hands that the Pharisees were asking Jesus about. Now, you might have thought that these behaviours actually just sound like someone who is self-righteous, and you would be right. Self-righteousness is essentially the same thing. A self-righteous person believes that they are holy, but in actuality, they are prideful because they believe that they have arrived at some height of spirituality, that they have deemed themselves righteous, and by default, they are acting superior. Okay, this podcast is all about trying to go deeper in our faith and address this sense that something is missing. Well, if you have been on a hamster wheel trying to be a righteous person and you are tired and empty, it could be because you too have assumed that this man-made righteousness is the crux of faith. It could be that like so many others, your faith is not in Jesus, but it is in your works. And you can be assured that this would validate why you feel hungry still, even though it feels like you are doing everything for God. So let's just think about this a little bit deeper again. There are a lot of people out there that really hate God. But sadly, it's not the God that we see in Jesus that they have rejected. They were simply rejecting the image of God that is created when its believers have endorsed and worshipped a religious spirit. In Luke 15 verse 1, there is this staggering verse that we probably glaze over. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. The most hated and rejected people in society of that day were intrigued by Jesus. These people who would have endured mockery and exclusion were just trying to get to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. If you've ever been a church leader, you have probably sat around a table trying to work out how we could engage people who don't know Jesus. But Jesus wasn't even trying to gather them. They were coming of their own accord. What accounts for this? Imagine if all the people who hated church were just to show up one day, intrigued. What would have changed for them? What would be happening for them to leave behind years of history and presumptions about church and God? Jesus attracted them because he was doing something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't and wouldn't do. He made God accessible. Whilst the religious leaders of that day were trying to work out more and more hoops for people to jump through, to be righteous, Jesus came to help us find God. The righteousness levels of the people he walked with were not his concern He wanted to show them what God was really like. The Pharisaical community still believed that God was this one-dimensional God full of thunder and lightning and the power to destroy like that in Exodus 20, and therefore he was one to be afraid of. They elevated his holiness to such a degree that it diminished his personability. The fact is that Jesus is still trying to make God accessible to us today. He has given every believer the Holy Spirit so that we can go out into the world and testify his goodness. 
So anything that encourages you to jump through hoops to approach God is probably not Jesus. Anything that suggests that some, including you, should be held at arm's length because of their sin is probably not Jesus. Because if the Jesus that you seek extends favour to the good, you have the wrong impression of Jesus. Jesus extended kindness to everyone, the sinner, the tax collector, the rich, the poor, children, Roman, Samaritan and Jew. He was not stopping anyone from coming to him. Everyone had an equal chance of meeting him. What might be missing about your impressions of Jesus if you think faith is for the holy? In the first chapter of Job, there is a scene in which Satan and God discuss the righteousness of Job. God praises Job in front of Satan, to which Satan then alleges that Job is only good because God has given him a good life. Satan basically incites God to prove Job's righteousness by allowing him to endure unfavourable life circumstances. Even though Satan kills off his entire family, Job still remains righteous. You know, there was a time because of Satan that we had to prove our righteousness. He held the power of death in his hand and the only way we were redeemed was if we could prove that we were good as God defined good. Otherwise, Satan could claim the same consequence to us that was given to him. But then Jesus comes along and we are given his righteousness as our defence. When our faith is reduced to rules, ones that God never asked us to have, it is as though we remain in the seat of slander. We are basically allowing the accuser to continue accusing us. We are mistakenly continuing to demonstrate and prove our innocence. Have you ever had someone ask you to prove yourself when you know you don't have to? Well, following the precepts of a religious spirit means that you still think you need to answer Satan's request for proof. So why are we still trying to prove ourselves and who benefits from this proof? Because God doesn't benefit from it. You don't benefit from it. So who benefits? And another thing, why is Jesus' righteousness not satisfactory for us? Is that not what we are saying when our priority is proving through behaviour that we are good? God isn't asking us to demonstrate our righteousness. He already knows that we can't achieve the level of righteousness that he has. And he has thousands of years of history as evidence of that. Jesus' righteousness is our final and conclusive defence against this burden of proof. You might have been told that God hates sin, and yes, he does not like sin because of the cyclical trap that it entices us into. But that does not mean he is disgusted or repulsed by you and that you need to perform righteous acts to regain his approval. God declaring you righteous through Jesus is not dependent on whether you feel righteous. No, God doesn't ask us to prove anything. He asks us to remain. John 15 says, remain in his love. Remain in the vine. When Christ is the vine and we are the branches, as long as we stay grafted in, He is the source of all goodness that comes out of us. Don't be distracted by how you feel. 
and how everybody else is doing. Stay in relationship with him. It says that he will trim and prune you to make you even more fruitful if you remain in him and remain in his love. Hey, we have a great deal for you. When you purchase any of my books from my website, the postage and handling will be free for the month of April. This is for delivery to Australian locations only. So check out my website at meljsaywood.com.